Okay. All right, we're rolling. Henry Ward Beecher died in Brooklyn, 1887, age of 73. His biographer called him the most famous man in America. That smells like hyperbole to me. There were a lot of famous guys in the 19th century, like Abraham Lincoln, for instance, and other guys. But I would say Beecher was probably the most famous preacher in the 19th century. Beecher the preacher. I don't think there was anyone on his level um, from the pulpit, which is an ironic statement because he didn't believe in pulpits. Um, Get to that in a minute. He was the son of Lyman Beecher. Lyman Beecher was a famous pastor. The famous Beecher preaching lectures uh, are named after his father. He was uh, the sister of Harriet Beecher. He was, his sister was Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, celebrated abolitionist novel. Uh, Beecher was not a scholar. He was a popularizer. He was a pastor. And he was a powerful orator. Probably the most powerful orator in the country. Not probably. Uh, he was not in any way... Uh, a theologian, the scope of somebody like Bushnell. He wasn't a careful doctrinal thinker. Um, but he liked Bushnell and he read Bushnell in his training and he took uh, Bushnell and made him more available to people. Uh, the nature of Beecher's faith in his ministry that he conducted owed a lot to his understanding of God's love in the gospel. And I want to quote Beecher here on his understanding of God's disposition in love toward sinners. This is really important. This is his understanding of God's heart toward sinful human beings. And it diffused itself through all his preaching. Here's what he says. Quote, It pleased God to reveal to my wandering soul the idea that it was his nature to love a man in his sins for the sake of helping him out of them, that he did not do it out of compliment to Christ. That statement is very important. He didn't do it out of compliment to Christ or to a plan of salvation. He was not a being made mad by sin, but sorry. He was not furious with wrath toward the sinner, but pitied him. In short, That he felt toward me as my mother felt toward me, to whose eyes my wrongdoing brought tears, who never pressed me so close as when I had done wrong. And when I found that Jesus Christ had such a a disposition, I felt that I had found a God. Beecher found a God. And in the Congregational Church of Plymouth, Congregational Church in Brooklyn, he also found an audience. God does not love us out of compliment to Christ. He loves us like our mothers love us. So Beecher pastored Plymouth Church for 40 years. He became very popular, all the while taking outside speaking engagements. Uh, He was, in the words of David Larson, David Larson, pastor of First Covenant Church, downtown Minneapolis for a generation. Larson wrote this about Beecher. It was hard for him to be serious. He was the P.T. Barnum of the pulpit. Edification gave way to entertainment. Beecher began preparing his morning sermon an hour before the service. Spurgeon did the night before, so don't (laughs) rake him too much over the coals. 
He preached virtually extemporaneously with much ad-libbing. Some people can do that. Um, he didn't use a pulpit, deliberately. Uh, he wanted the full range of the, the platform. He wouldn't call his sanctuary a sanctuary. He wanted it to be known as an auditorium. And it was a mighty auditorium. 2,500 souls would pile in there week after week and hear him preach. And the theology that he expounded was a perfect fit for post-Civil War America. Coming-of-age, industrial-age America. And it was a far cry from the theology that his father, Lyman Beecher, sought to impress on him. Um, Henry Ward Beecher preached the power of positive thinking a century before that phrase was coined. His sermons were filled, on the one hand, with just these lurid depictions of vice. Oh, he could describe sin like you wouldn't believe. And then he wanted to paint piety and holiness just in these resplendent colors. Uh, He would say things like this. Here's a quote. Every charitable act is a stepping stone toward heaven. And here's another one. God pardons like a mother who kisses the offense into everlasting forgiveness. Okay, he was a wordsmith. Uh, he said in 1885, two years before his death, I believe there is rising upon the world to shine out in wonderful effulgence a view of God a better understanding of the nature of God, the frowning God, the partial God, the fate God, F-A-T-E, fate God, men would fain let die. But the Father God, watching, caring, bearing burdens, this nobler view of God is what, is what he would preach. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, Beecher was the, the first public pastor in America to go on record endorsing Charles Darwin's 1859 blockbuster, Origin of Species. Uh, That was published during his pastorate at uh, Congregational Church, Plymouth. Beecher gave a serious push to Darwinian evolution, big time. He stuck his neck out. He had some um, street credibility, and that lent untold credibility to Darwin's theory in this country. When a guy like Beecher backs you, people start to listen. Interestingly, Horace Bushnell also lived to see the advent of Darwin's theory and rejected it entirely. He drew a line in the sand again that Beecher happily crossed. Uh, Beecher's methods and his message were clearly liberal in the sense that we understand that term today. He really felt his religion to be something different than what his father taught him. He he said, I'm I'm coming to understand a different religion. Uh, Sadly, too, not just his methods or his message, but uh, we would have to include in this assessment his morals. And I don't say this happily, but this is public knowledge. Um, from his earliest days of his ministry, Beecher was not, in the words of the Apostle Paul, First uh, Timothy 3.2, above reproach. Uh, Beecher married Eunice Bullard in 1837, and their marriage was never a strong one. Uh, reports of adulterous relationships plagued him from the very beginning. Uh, one biographer said of Beecher, quote, Beecher preaches to seven or eight of his mistresses every Sunday. The greatest accusation along these lines um, against Beecher came in the form of the Beecher-Tilton scandal, which doesn't mean anything to us today. The Beecher-Tilton scandal. Um, Elizabeth Tilton was the wife of Beecher's friend Theodore. 
And Elizabeth confessed, confessed to her husband, Theodore, that she had had an affair with Beecher. Uh, one author I read compared the story to a 19th century version of the O.J. Simpson trial. It was a very big deal. It was a media circus. The trial began in January of 1875. It concluded in July of 75. Beecher was exonerated on all charges. He kept his pastorate, kept his marriage, uh, though perhaps not his good name. For all of Beecher's strengths and faults, uh, one area that was not a strong suit was, was scholarship, we said. In fact, it's fascinating to realize that through the majority of the 19th century, in the main line, in Protestant thinking, theological liberalism was not the dominant view in Protestantism. It hadn't won the day yet. In order for that to happen, an academic movement needed to be mounted. Schools that were in the tradition of Methodism, Presbyterianism, and so on needed to mount this muscle, and they did. Um, What's amazing to see is that how through the capture of the established liberal schools and then the establishment of new schools captured by liberalism, between 1865 and 1895, liberal theology became, in 30 years, the dominant view within Protestantism. From 1865, it was the minority view. By 1895, it had won the day. All the denominations were headed toward liberalism. And that's the final topic. Yeah. All the major Protestant denominations. And so we want to head to that final topic tonight because we've got to set the table for tomorrow morning. Uh, This is the rise of the liberal academy. Gary Dorian fascinatingly observes, quote, the country that made Lyman Beecher a national icon was ready for a liberal theology movement. But mainline American Christianity had no liberal theologians in 1876. That's quite a statement. Stunning statement. But the conditions are going to change. Um, very quickly, a handful of names emerge that are going to push the ball down the field very, very fast for liberal thinking in schools. Um, so, those names. Theodore Munger, Washington Gladden, and Newman Smythe. These guys were pastor theologians. They were pastors. They were movement leaders. They weren't scholars, but they were doing scholarship from their pastorates. Charles Briggs, we're going to look at Briggs Uh, was Presbyterian Old Testament scholar at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And then one more that we won't look at is is Borden Parker Bound, who was a Methodist theologian, Boston University. That's a Methodist school, BU. Uh, The deepest irony here is that in the development of academic liberalism, Munger, Gladden, Smythe, Briggs, Bound, all of them, with the exception of Briggs, flirted with heresy their entire careers with the exception of Briggs. And yet it was Briggs in 1891 that was found guilty of heresy by the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. And we need to look at that story because the other guys you don't hear much about. This guy, if you do some reading, you do hear about, and he's the quote-unquote heretic. So now that we've used the H word, uh, let's try to define that. Uh, Heresy was a word when it emerged in uh, Greek language was a, a very neutral word. It simply meant an act of choice. That's all it means. Eventually, the word heresy became a synonym for a religious party or a religious sect, and it very slowly began to take on the um, 
clothing and the connotations it carries today, negative connotations. Uh, the word appears in the Bible. Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 1, couples the word heresy with the word destructive, which is really helpful because, in other words, there were heresies that were not destructive. There were, there were ways of thinking in the first century. Peter had to talk about destructive heresy. Destructive heresy. Which means there's a difference between destructive heresy and bad theology. I hope you believe that. There's a difference between destructive heresy and bad theology. Bad theology hurts people. Destructive heresy kills people. Bad theology is an unfortunate error. Destructive heresy is a lethal error. Um, the reference that Peter gives in 2 Peter 2.1 is denying the master who bought them. That's what Peter mentions. And we would be well to consider how badly Charles Briggs was wronged in the charge of heresy because he did not deny the master who bought him. He denied the doctrine of inerrancy. The denial of inerrancy may be bad theology. You might even say it's seriously bad theology. But you would be hard-pressed to look somebody in the eye and say it is destructive heresy. This man was born in New York City in 1841. He was converted at the age of 17 during the great prayer meeting revival of 1858. If you ever studied the history of revival, the 1858 businessmen's, business, businessmen's meeting in New York City was a big deal. And he met Jesus in New York City and became a Christian. His family encouraged him to join the Presbyterians because they seemed to be the most solid at the time. Couldn't trust the other groups. Um, he wanted to move in the direction of theological training, and he had two choices. Presbyterians on the East Coast had two choices. You can go to Princeton in New Jersey, which is the solid, good, old, orthodox Presbyterian school, or Union, which is more progressive. Union is the school in New York City. And to the surprise and dismay of his family, he chooses Union. Um, like a lot of scholars of his day, he goes to Germany. He went to Berlin, and he was exposed to radical theological liberalism, full flower in Germany at this point. And he's impressed with it. And he takes on board uh, what's known as biblical higher criticism, and he jettisons from his boat uh, a belief in the doctrine of the inerrancy of the Bible. And then he came back home, like most of them did, and uh, he begins to pastor a church in Roselle, New Jersey, first pres of Roselle, New Jersey. Now, this is what he said after his time in Germany. Listen to this. Quote, What the church needs today is the strong meat, the good, old, strong, Calvinistic, Augustinian, and Pauline doctrines reiterated in all their sublimity and power. It is a mark of our degeneracy, that these grand old doctrines of the Reformation expressed in our catechism, the Westminster Catechism, are not brought out as much in force and prominence as heretofore. He was not a liberal. He didn't like the term. He knew the term. He rejected the term. It didn't fit him. 
But he had affinities for biblical higher criticism because of his Germany experience. And he just couldn't pull the trigger on inerrancy. It just wasn't who he was. He didn't believe it. He didn't believe the Westminster Confession of Faith taught it. A number of people have argued that over the years. He was a man of deep integrity, and he had broad working relationships. He had friendships. He knew the Princeton guys. He knew the old line, Archibald Alexander Hodge, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield at Princeton. And he took on the co-editorship of the Princeton Review, which is the big uh, theological magazine of the day. Um, And he links arms with these guys. And you can imagine a partnership like that is not without its hiccups. Because um, these guys wrote the book on, on the, the defense of inerrancy in 1881. They wrote a, an important book, Defending Inerrancy. And eventually the partnership became strained uh, over that issue. Briggs would not affirm inerrancy. And he was not shy about explaining why. And this is what got him in some trouble. Here's some quotes. Verbal, plenary inspiration imperils the doctrine of inspiration itself by bringing it into conflict with a vast array of objections along the whole line of Scripture and history. What an awful doctrine to teach in our days when biblical criticism has the field. Okay? He was convinced of biblical higher criticism And he failed, though, to appreciate the impact of some of these statements. He was not afraid to make them. And I don't think either he failed to appreciate them or he just didn't care how these statements were going to go down. He probably didn't care. Um, So Hodge and Warfield and the Princeton School are listening to him. And he starts to get very reckless with the way he's talking about inerrancy. He says the following. Inerrancy brings peril to precious souls. No more dangerous doctrine has ever come from the pen of men. Inerrancy is a ghost of modern evangelicalism to frighten children. And finally, he says, this doctrine, the the inerrancy of Scripture, has cost the church the loss of thousands. He doesn't define that. I don't know if that's dollars or people. I think, yes. He saw the Presbyterian church bleeding out because people wouldn't hold to Princeton's understanding of inerrancy. And he says it'll cost us 10,000, 100,000 unless the true Westminster doctrine is put speedily in its place. Do you hear that? The true Westminster doctrine, which would have been drafted in the 1650s in England. He was not interested in what he believed to be doctrinal novelty. He wanted the old what he saw to be definition of, of the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, now, whether Briggs was actually right on that score is, is highly contestable. Um, in fact, uh, if you read the careful work of John Woodbridge, his 1982 book, Biblical Authority, you find that Briggs is actually writing a, a check that he can't cash. Um, Briggs said that the Westminster Confession of Faith doesn't teach inerrancy. He was wrong. And John Woodbridge explains that in um, page after page. That's in your reading handout. Um, and the Presbyterians knew it. They knew that the Westminster Doctrine, their catechism, taught it. And they accused him of heresy. Uh, Briggs's friend and the eminent church historian, Philip Schaff, who wrote a, edited something called the Creeds of Christendom. It's a kind of basic reading for seminarians. Philip Schaff said this of Briggs. 
in Germany, Dr. Briggs would be classed with the conservative in the Orthodox. In fact, he's a Calvinist in everything except the questions of higher criticism. Okay, so he had conservative allies um, like guys like Philip Schaff, but they, they weren't enough to dim the voices that were crying heresy in the Presbyterian Church USA in 1891. And eventually Briggs was uh, deemed a heretic. He left the PCUSA because he had to. And he joined the Episcopal Church USA, which is the movement I started in as a little boy. Uh, he became a priest. He was ordained in the Episcopal Church, a priest, 1891. And uh, ironically, Briggs lived to see the real liberal turn of union that happened in the 19-teens, just prior to World War I. And it grieved him deeply. He hated it. He didn't have to leave Union Seminary. He could continue teaching there, but he was no longer a Presbyterian. And he saw the real deal, the real modernism, the real denial that we see the Unitarians made a century before emerge, and it grieved him. Um, For those who are uh, Hebrew geeks in the room, uh, his name is uh, enshrined in the, the most famous Hebrew English lexicon in the English language, bears his name, BDB. Francis Brown, S.R. Driver, Charles Briggs. He loved the Bible. Loved the Bible. He loved the Old Testament. He loved Hebrew. Didn't believe in inerrancy. And he got an H on his chest. So what do we learn from this page in the history of the development of American liberal theology? Um, What do Bushnell and Beecher... And then the rise of the true liberal academy, guys that we didn't look at, but you certainly could, Munger, Gladden, Smythe, Bound, um, who believed basically what the Unitarians believed about the Bible, about Christ, about Trinity, and so on. Um, what does their existence tell us? What's the lesson of the heresy trial of Charles Briggs? Um, there are many lessons, and I hope to kind of land the plane by 11 o'clock tomorrow morning and bring some applications home to us. Um, One thing is for sure, by the turn of the 20th century, most of American mainstream Christianity was prepared. It was ripe for theological liberalism. And that includes uh, the PCUSA, who uh, branded Briggs a heretic. They're going to make a dramatic about-face inside of a generation. And they will become a lightning rod for yet another, even greater storm, the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Uh, So tomorrow we're going to We're going to tackle the impossible. We're going to trace all the developments of American theological liberalism starting in 1900 up until this fall. How about that? Um, we got plenty of time to talk now. We've got about 20 minutes. So feel free to, again, pie, coffee, restroom. But we've got some time to chat a little bit.